Morning. morning. Happy Sabbath. My name is Russell Atkins. I'm filling in for Tim this morning. I want to welcome uh, visitors and uh, regular members. Welcome those who are listening online as well. Let's begin with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pause in our morning to acknowledge you as our creator and our redeemer. I want to thank you for the gift of this day and what it represents and the ability to come uh, and learn a little bit more about your character and a little bit about how uh, sin has defaced your character in our minds and hearts. Uh, please guide our study today as we, we study about guilt. Uh, be with those of our group who are not with us today. Uh, bring them safely back in the weeks ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. We are studying Lesson 5 uh, in our quarterly, uh, Bible and Human Emotions. Lesson 5 is entitled Guilt. <clears throat> Excuse me. And actually, before, before I delve into the lesson, I want to review... Uh, Legitimate versus illegitimate guilt, and, and my reference on this is Tim's book, um, Could It Be This Simple, in pages 90 through 96, where he, he kind of, he gives a very good, uh, outline and explanation contrasting legitimate versus illegitimate guilt, and I'm, I'm gonna skim the surface of it today, uh, but for those of you who wanna get a little more in depth, go back to his book and, and check it out. Uh, first of all, legitimate guilt. This is, uh, this is a guilt that occurs uh, when we are out of harmony with the law of love. And the only solution to this guilt is repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. That's how, it, that's how it's fixed. The, offended, the offending party has experienced true repentance. The offended party has to offer genuine forgiveness. And then the relationship uh, experiences restoration. Now, illegitimate guilt. There, there are three types of this. Um, type one. There's an example that he gives um, about a, a spouse who's moody. Wife comes home, husband's grouchy about something, nothing. You know, who knows? We all we all get in these uh, we all get in these funks when we just gripe about anything and nothing. And the husband either blames the wife for his bad mood, or the wife takes it upon herself that his bad mood is her fault. And, and she feels a guilt that her husband's in a bad mood. Um, and any effort, actually efforts to try to assuage this guilt and fix this guilt uh, make things worse. The resolution to this type of guilt is an application of the truth. And this is a theme that we're going to see through, uh, through the illegitimate guilt types. Is the, the solution is application of the truth. The truth is, is that the woman had nothing to do with her husband's bad mood. And when she realizes this and understands it and applies it, she can afford him the freedom to be in a bad mood and to be upset and grumpy and angry and not affect her. Okay, any questions so far? All right, illegitimate guilt type two. Um, this is a guilt from having pursued a course of action which ends in some sort of trauma, either physical or emotional or financial, uh, and we pursue this course of action based on information we had that was either inadequate or inaccurate. For example, child, uh, a, a parent takes a child to the emergency room with fever and, and coughing and, and chills, and, and the uh, ER doc says, got a common cold, give him some Tylenol, get him some rest, plenty of fluids few days they'll be fine. In reality, the child had bacterial meningitis, uh, and the child dies as a result of this, and the parent blames themselves for the child's death. The, child, the parent was given faulty information. 
parent was given an incorrect diagnosis and the, and the parent made the decision that they made based on an incorrect diagnosis, based on inaccurate information. Um, these, these are cases where grief often gets um, misconstrued as guilt or vice versa. Guilt gets misconstrued as grief. Okay? Again, the solution to this type of guilt is an application of the truth. The truth is, is the parent made an intelligent decision based on the information that they had. And while it is indeed tragic that the, the, a child passed away because of, because of receiving faulty information, it's not the parent's fault. This is a, this is a very, very difficult um, arena, uh, and it's one that I can't, I can't speak to because I don't have children. Um, lots and lots of parents blame themselves for decisions that their children made as independent, free, free-thinking moral agents. Child, children are free to make decisions that are contrary to, to the um, guidance that parents give them. Uh, and lots of parents internalize this and feel guilty about decisions their children have made. And I, I can't, I can't, I can't comprehend it. I can't appreciate it. I can't understand it. But my heart goes out to you. Uh, type three legitimate guilt, illegitimate guilt. Excuse me. This is guilt that basically comes from not being fully healed in our hearts and minds. Uh, and I know that sounds a lot like legitimate guilt because legitimate guilt uh, comes from being out of harmony uh, with our with the law of love, which is also a result of not being healed in the heart and mind. But there's some subtle differences. Um, Tim gives the example in his book of a, a woman who has a, an affair, an adulterous affair on her husband, and is consumed with, with guilt immediately. Guilty, revulsed, she, she stops the affair, she confesses you know, the affair to God and to her husband, husband forgives her, and the relationship is restored, and yet years down the road, the woman is still consumed with guilt over an affair that happened uh, years in the past. And the problem here is that the woman has not changed her her way of thinking. Okay, the thing the thing that led her into the affair in the first place was being motivated by strong feelings, emotions, a strong desire, attraction for another man. And she hasn't corrected that part of her thinking pattern. So even though the relationship was restored, her mind is still operating in an old dysfunctional pattern where she's being she's continually motivated by strong feelings, strong impulses. And the only cure to this type of illegitimate guilt is application of the truth. Um, the truth is, is that good sound judgment that an adulterous affair is destructive is going to heal the thought processes and restore her mind into a more correct way of thinking. Okay? So I hope this provides some adequate background for what we're going to talk about uh, here in just a little bit. Let's look at Sabbath's lesson. Someone read the memory text uh, for Sabbath's lesson. And, and this this is a very short text, but it is loaded. Shout it out. Psalms 130, verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand... But with you, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. Any thoughts? The word feared is interesting. Yes, it is, isn't it? 
do you think David was uh, referring to here? But with you, God, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. Well, if you use the word fear, like we would say afraid of something, it, it, it's, doesn't, it doesn't make sense. No. He's full of forgiveness, and yet we're afraid of it. Uh, okay. It makes sense if you use that definition of fear. Respect it. Okay, did the author mean awed, or did he mean afraid of? Yes. One definition of fear is reverence, submission. Mm-hmm. Correct. Wendell? Just choose a different translation. Okay, read one, if you have one. Today's English version, if you kept a record of our sins, who could escape being condemned, but you forgive us, so that we should stand in awe of you. Okay, let me ask you something. If you have wronged someone... Gossiped about them. What, what, the list is endless. If you've wronged someone and they have genuinely forgiven you, are you comfortable in their presence? You haven't repented for this this uh, this wrongful uh, deed yet, but they have forgiven you. Are you comfortable in their presence, or maybe might you be a little bit afraid to be in their presence? Okay, there's there's there are many 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 layers to this text. Um, I, 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 some questions just popped into my head. Um, you know, I, again, it, 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 is the author talking about us being in awe of God because of his you know, limitless forgiveness, or does it really mean that because he's forgiving we should be afraid of him? Uh, is this why devils tremble? Uh, remember the text, the devils believe and tremble. Okay, Is this perhaps why devils are afraid? Because they 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 been in God's very presence. They understood they understood his forgiveness and they believed a lie. Well, especially as it has us relating to God, it's about our condition. Mm-hmm. Because he, he's staying the same. So, you know, the same God is either reverenced or feared, but it depends on our condition. Depends on our state of mind, our heart. Correct. Well said. What does this text have to do with, um, and what's the relationship between this message and our topic today, guilt? If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But because, but with you there's forgiveness, therefore you're feared. Is there a connection between that and guilt? Well, I think if you're guilty, you're guilty still, whether you're forgiven or not. I mean, if if you're sick then being forgiven doesn't make you not sick. But okay. the thing is, being forgiven, knowing that God loves you, will bring you into a place where changes can begin to happen. But it's just not a matter of forgiveness that takes away guilt. It's more healing that takes away guilt. Good. Well said. I think part of it is, is God wants this to be over and move forward. And he wants us for it to be over and move forward also. In the, in the um, man that was let down through the roof that Christ healed, you know, he said, your sins be forgiven you. And um, that was what the man desired. He desired that even more than, than wellness. And sometimes our physical status is less important to us than the mental pain we have of a broken relationship, etc. Okay, and often the two are intimately linked. 
Well, if you have asked forgiveness for your sins, and you continue to live in the guilt of your sins, how can your faith and trust in God continue to grow if you live in this guilt? Okay, who, who have you asked for forgiveness, I mean, first of all? Well, I'm saying, well, say if you confess to sin to God. Okay. And ask forgiveness, but yet you're still living in the guilt of the sin. It seems to me like that would hamper your relationship, your faith and your trust. If you don't have enough faith and trust that he's really forgiven you, that hampers that relationship with God. Okay. Uh, okay, is this, would this be a, an example of legitimate guilt or illegitimate guilt? Because <laughs> it, it, so, it sounds to me like this is an example of the, the third example of illegitimate guilt. Because it, if you if you're still questioning whether or not you're being forgiven, then then you then we don't under, we don't understand the true nature of God. God is forgiving. God is forgiveness. God is love. Okay, and if if we don't feel feel forgiven then there's still something in our way of thinking that needs needs fine-tuning. It's not forgiving yourself. It's not forgiving yourself. For, you know, God has forgiven you, but you won't forgive yourself. And I've seen a lot of times with illegitimate guilt that um, people will be under the, the, the burden of self-punishment that they don't deserve to be forgiven. They don't deserve to be seen in a new, fresh light. And they continue to do actions that are self-punishing because of what they've done, never really accepting God's forgiveness. And here again, isn't this also a manifestation of an incorrect God concept? They view God as punishing. They view God as punitive and vindictive. So therefore, they, we often treat ourselves the way we, we view, we treat ourselves and others the way we view God would treat them. Well, she just uh, polished off by saying it's about the acceptance, which is something that whether the guilt is legitimate or illegitimate, to me, we still have to accept the forgiveness part. That's the, the key component that it doesn't seem like we've been discussing. But I was going to throw out there that I think that when we don't accept and we continue to live in this, you know, this feeling of guilt that's weighing us down, whether we think we've accepted or not, I have a tendency to think that that now becomes a resource that is a very effective tool for Satan to continue to hammer away at us. So we stay under that little tiny thought in the back of our head, well, you know, am I really, <laughs> have I, you know, have I truly accepted, am I still, and now am I feeling all fresh and clean and white like we're told mm -hmm. that we should? It's just so easy to say it and so hard to swallow it with our, I think, our pride and self-sufficiency. Well, I was just thinking about those that God forgave on the cross. None of those had asked for forgiveness. And then he sent the disciples to Jerusalem, the first place to witness, and gave them a second chance to turn their lives around, and I think many did. But there, I think there's another aspect of forgiveness. People forgive, and the person who has in, the need for forgiveness is angry because they don't want to be forgiven. They, they want to have done what they did to hurt somebody because they're so angry at them, and to forgive them is like keeping coals of fire on their head. Yeah, exactly. I was just going to say, we have to remember that our feelings lie. Mm -hmm. um, that they are not a reliable source of information all the time. Um, so if we ask God for forgiveness and we don't feel forgiven, we can still 
recognize that we are forgiven and ask God to help, help heal our feelings. Mm. Excellent. Correct. And, and again, illegitimate gift, guilt being resolved by an application of the truth. The truth is, is that God is forgiving. That God is love. God forgives. Uh, okay. Um, another question I had kind of regarding this general topic here is, uh, is guilt just a natural consequence of a sinful mind, or is it one of God's interventions to keep in, in check the consequences of sin? And bear in mind, I, I don't have an answer. Uh, I'm, 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 look, I'm looking for answers. <laughs> is it kind of part of the function of the conscience? <clears throat> Perhaps, like, uh, well, well, I think the conscience is, is from God. So God designed our conscience, but did, did he intend, did he design it to experience guilt? <clears throat> or is guilt simply a natural consequence of falling out of harmony with his law of love? Or is this an intervention that, that God gave us guilt uh, in order for the Holy Spirit to be able to, to wake us up and to be able to communicate with us? Just like pain when you touch the hot stove, God created a system where that works. I would tend to believe that just like with Adam and Eve, it was immediate, that guilt feeling, that the ability to feel it was there. I don't think he wants us to feel illegitimate guilt. Mm -hmm. But Satan knows how to take something true and turn it into something false in every situation of life. Any other thoughts? Don't you think it all kind of boils down to the the lack of understanding of the true character of God? Isn't it Desire of Ages that starts out by suggesting that we were, that's why Jesus came down, so we could understand it. And I think as we've gotten farther away from Christ's crucifixion, we just still get caught up in God really can't forgive us for certain things. Just, it doesn't seem like he is. And he's a punitive, legal person to most of us. I mean, to a lot of us that haven't worked at studying to see what the real character of God is. And the solution to guilt and all these little things that we carry on with is... A continual study and begin to understand the true character of God. Well said. Yes, sir. If we continue sin, eventually that a small voice is going to disappear and we don't feel it sin, again, sin anymore. Correct. And we're going to get to that, I think, in Wednesday's lesson that talks, uh, talks about the seared conscious, consciousness, seared conscience, excuse me. Or maybe it's Tuesdays. Experienced guilt? experienced guilt that's an excellent question and and one of the things that i had intended to look at was you know the patriarchs and prophets the origin of evil because i seem to recall something in there suggesting that he at the time of his initial rebellion he, he experienced these feelings but don't quote me on that because i forgot to review it and came here uh less than adequately armed. So that's, a, that's an excellent question, and it's one I wondered about as well. Do you feel guilty? <laughs> uh, no, I don't. <laughs> well, that's good. That's very good. Okay, moving right along. <laughs> Sunday's lesson. Let's look at the first guilt experience that, that, that we know of, the first one in Scripture anyway. Uh, someone read Genesis 3. Verses 8 through 13. This is, of course, uh, Adam and Eve's experience. Genesis 3, 
uh, 8 through 13. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord, Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. We've looked at this passage uh, at length in this class, and we're going to take a, yet another look at it because it has some very, very um, deep insights in it. The lesson suggests in the second paragraph that where is it? guilt brings about a seemingly automatic response, excuse me, automatic reaction to place the blame on somebody else or to justify one's own, own behavior with argumentation. My question was, is it guilt that does this or is it sin itself? And maybe the two are the two are related. Maybe sin brings about guilt, and guilt brings about this this need to to throw someone else under the bus. It was uh, one of my <laughs> one of my favorite uh, favorite songs when I was in an academy. I had a line that said, "Blame is better to give than receive," <laughs> and uh, it kind of dovetails nicely with uh, you know what happened here in the garden. Um, Adam throws his wife under the bus, and by by virtue of the transitive property, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Uh, since God made his Eve, then Adam was basically putting the blame on God. And Eve, the same thing. Eve blamed the serpent, which God created, and Satan co-opted. So Eve was also blaming God for uh, her, her, dece- her being deceived and, and taking the fruit. Um, further down the paragraph, uh, it says, but blaming others does not work well for interpersonal relationships. That's absolutely correct. And poses a barrier to God's forgiveness. Uh, I just wanted to clarify that statement. Uh, I think that uh, guilt slash this need to blame others poses a barrier for us to accept and receive God's forgiveness. It does not pose a barrier for God to be forgiving. Are, are we clear on that? I just wanted to well, fine-tune that. Yes. We'll take that verse. Um, if you do not forgive other people their sins, and I will not forgive you, and, and put conditions on God's forgiveness mm-hmm. um, as opposed to making that a, a constant that we throw barriers from our perspective um, in front of. Anyway. Yes. Sin makes us feel separated from whoever we're guilty against, whether it's God or, I mean, obviously every sin is a thing against God, but also other human beings. Mm-hmm. We feel like we're not comfortable in their presence, but in God, uh, and maybe with other human beings, they feel separated from us. But with God, He isn't separated from us. We've separated. We've done the action to separate ourselves in our minds. But He comes looking for us. He isn't separating Himself from us because of our guilt. Mm-hmm. We're doing it ourselves. Yes, thank you. And you know, growing up, I had read this passage numerous times, and and it never ever dawned on me until I started coming to this class that 
God was not angry when he came looking for Adam and Eve. Um, he was not, he did not have any righteous indignation. He, his only, his only concern was for their well-being and, and, and making an effort to, you know, put checks in place to stop the cascade that he knew was going to happen and to work for their eventual healing. It never, it never occurred to me to, to ponder that. All I knew was that, oh, they ate the fruit. Now, now look where, now look where we are. All right, moving on to Monday's lesson. Russell? Yes. Um, I was thinking with that verse that says, um, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Do you think he really, the initial thought was he was naked, so he was afraid? Or because the guilt was there, he threw out something? <laughs> you know, like he, like he either didn't quite understand, but he felt guilt immediately for what he had done. And what he had done was, was disobey mm-hmm. and, and ate of that apple that he was told not to. So why would the nakedness come in there? Except he, he knew that he was unveiled at that time. But I think the guilt was still for the action, not because he observed a circumstance. Uh, earlier in Genesis, uh, there's a passage that says, this is right after Adam and Eve's creation, and I, I, I can't quote the text, it says that they were naked and unashamed. Mm-hmm. So they were technically naked both times. You know, we understand that they were clothed with a robe of white, and that, that disappeared at the time that they violated the law of love. But in one, in one situation, they were naked and unashamed. Next situation, they were naked and ashamed. What changed? They were still naked. Guilt of that action. Of what they Their minds and hearts had changed. Yeah. I think it has, it's like, um, in my mind, God lives in a glass house. He's just wide open for all of us to investigate everything because he has nothing to hide. And I think the nakedness has more to do with that kind mm-hmm. of a thing than anything else, than actually a physical garment of any kind. I think that whenever they did not have guilt, whenever they were innocent, there was nothing to hide. But once, so they were, they were just open, they were wide open, everyone could look right on in, and there was nothing to be ashamed of or to hide for. But whenever they were guilty, whenever then they've committed this act of lawlessness, of untrustworthiness, then all of a sudden they just feel exposed. You know, mm. they, then they have something that they want to hide, and in God's presence they just feel naked in an ugly kind of way. I think that's a great insight. I've never considered it that way. Thank you. Tim? Uh, I totally agree with everything she just said, and then I also think that this was the first time they'd ever had focus on themselves. You know, up until this point, they'd always been focused on the other person. They'd always been focused on God. They'd always been focused on things outside of themselves. Now, for the first time, the focus came to themselves. Mm, that's another great insight. Thank you. Uh, in Monday's lesson, the lesson makes a great point here in the second paragraph. It says that in order to resolve guilt, quote, repentance and forgiveness are required. That is absolutely dead on. Uh, that's the only way to resolve legitimate guilt. Repentance and forgiveness. Well, since God is, is continually forgiving, then the, the majority of the, um, majority of the problem, the majority of the equation 
ends up with us. Okay, we have to experience repentance. And we're going to see later on that God actually, in, in transforming and changing our hearts, he gives us this repentance. So he, he does everything if we, if we allow him, if we let him. Any other thoughts on Monday's lesson? Yes, Wendell. Just one comment, and that is, if Joseph Brothers never would have had the opportunity of seeing Joseph again, it's difficult sometimes to feel to feel restoration when that person who we have wronged is not there to complete the circle. Mm. That happens often when someone dies and, and right. restitution has never been able. Or in this instance, in this instance, there was restoration, or at least partial restoration, and he still had to be reminded of his death that he still wasn't mad at him. Mm-hmm. But. Um, you know, there was that opportunity, but if that had opportunity had not been there, there was it is more difficult in many people's minds to gain a feeling of restitution, even though the restitution should have occurred. Thank you. Uh, well said. All right. On Tuesday's lesson, uh, we're looking at uh, Psalm 32. Someone read the first five verses in that Psalms 32. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and to whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Through my groanings all all day long, for night and day, thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with fever. Heat of summer, I acknowledged my sin to thee and my iniquity, and I did not hide, and I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. Any thoughts on this passage? Yes. Don't you think uh, talking about God's forgiveness as an act is part of our problem when we talk about will, God will forgive us. He's already done it. I mean, it's there, it's done. If we confess our sins, then we're able to receive his forgiveness. So it's already there. And as we talk about it, and we will forgive us, then we begin to use words like, do you think God will ever be able to forgive me for this? You know, will God forgive? Will mm-hmm. God? He's mm-hmm. already done it. Right. We, I think that's a part of the language that creates a problem for us. If we think of it as a resource, it's already there. It's done. It's already been done. We we, def, we def, kind of default as forgiven. Yeah, we just need to tap into that. Mm. Yeah, that's a great insight. Uh, let's look at verse three, particularly. When I kept silent, my bone my bones grew old the, uh, through my groaning all the day long. Do, do we do we think this is a metaphor, or do we think that David actually felt a physical? Manifestation of unconfessed sin. Adam and Eve did. They fell naked, so why would it surprise us that that he felt just like deteriorated in, in mind and heart and body? Um, like you deteriorate. I'm going to open a can of worms here. I spoke with a, an orthopedic physician a few year, a couple of years ago regarding the process of fibromyalgia, and he quoted this text to me. And I thought, hmm. 
any condition that is is really physiologically there is going to be affected by our state of mind. That's for sure. So, could there be some degree to which, you know, mm-hmm. per- perhaps, but. And an unhealthy state of mind is always going to affect our physical well-being. Right. Correct. Exactly. Wendell? First of all, I'd like to say it wasn't me. It was not him. That's, that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for clearing that up. Looking <laughs> at some of the psychological profiles of those who have chronic disease, including fibromyalgia and rheumatoid arthritis and whatnot, there is uh, many times... Um, Findings consistent with pent up anger, but which came first? Right. You know, it's a chicken and egg problem. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we are um, unfortunately in a diseased bodies and diseased minds, and um, whether each one contributes to the other is, I think, very complex. I, I couldn't agree more, and I see that all the time in my practice. In fact. Um, I routinely uh, suggest counseling for patients of mine who have been in pain for what I consider chronic pain, which is uh, over 90 days, Um, because whether the the mind is the problem and is and the the pain is a is a manifestation of a of a problem in the mind, or if you've been in if you've been in a level of pain for a long time, it messes with your mind. Uh, It either it either situation uh we need to address the physical and the mental and the spiritual uh in concert with one another i also wanted to mention that in attending this class on depression that asthma can be a symptom of depression as well absolutely the, the, it will be in heaven before we fully understand all the all the physical manifestations of a, a sick heart and mind uh, and i think we're going to be astounded tim I don't know if this necessarily proves one way or another, but it is interesting that Jesus often did address the physical first. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't know if that, again, proves that one leads to the other, or if, or if it matters which order, but he often did address the physical first. Okay. Other thoughts? Yes. Yes, another thought was my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long, and the fact that um, a heavy heart night gives depression, and just not doing physically many things like you you, you want to just sleep all the time and your bones will waste away your muscles that because you're not doing anything you're you're just so burdened by this guilt and and this depression and that would be you know I, I, my feeling it could be another interpretation that the bones are wasting away they're just they just can't function excellent uh all right let's uh let's look at the the bottom of tuesday's lesson this this is where we're talking about uh, the seared consciences um I often wondered where this simile came up with, that our consciences will be seared like a hot iron. Uh, and I think this dovetails nicely with the Old Testament metaphor of, uh, of regarding leprosy and sin. Um, true leprosy. Now, the leprosy that's referred to in Old Testament um, Scripture is not necessarily talking about the leprosy that we understand uh, with modern medicine, they they consider leprosy any disease affecting the skin. It could be contact dermatitis or a heat rash or actual leprosy, which is we now refer to as Hansen's disease, as a result of a bacterial infection affecting the peripheral nerves and diminishing their ability to perceive pain. 
therefore, if the nerve endings in fingers and, and toes are numbed, people are going to smash their finger. They won't know it, and, and they end up damaging the tissue and, and losing their losing their fingers and toes and, and on further up as a result of the damage to the nerve that's occurred because they can't perceive pain. Um, and Paul's analogy here, uh, or his simile about the conscience being seared as with a hot iron, it follows the same progression. You think about um, think about the first time you ever saw a murder on television. And sadly, many of us were too young to even understand what was going on the first time we saw a murder on television. But if you if you have any sort of recollection on it, think about it. And think about how many you've seen since then. Uh, do you feel do you feel any different? Now, having been exposed to it over a period of years, or are we are we any less revulsed? Are we any? Uh, you know, it's it's almost you know we can watch, we can go to a movie or on television and cringe if a, if an animal gets hurt, but we can see a guy take a bullet in the brain and, and think nothing about it. Oh, it's just ketchup. Okay, this is the this is the kind of transformation that occurs when once we've been exposed to to something that's that's out of harmony with the law of love, but we competed, uh, excuse me, repeated continuous uh, exposure to this benumbs our conscience. Thoughts? It's easier to see um, if you stop. Say, for example, it's just you know watching TV and stuff. If you stop it for three months and then turn it on again it's horrifying oh, okay I, I see what you're saying yes because because we, we we stop we stop our exposure to this and then and also um and i've found this in my own life is that as as we become more and more in harmony with god's law of love the things that used to entertain me now now repulse me you know, entertainment choices, music, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I have a long way to go. I'll, I'll tell you that right now. But it, the I'm on the right path. That's all I hand over here. Say, we only become um, conditioned at a certain level. If you think of violence back, you know, 50 years ago on TV, when they shot someone that was no blood, um, you didn't see them fall, you didn't see them look over the body. So you, you became at some level numb to that. Mm -hmm. But then as Satan has used the media, and progressively it's been more graphic, and now even have um, on the news live, I mean real yeah, instances, right. that show the, the bloody scenes and that, it's, it's a slow conditioning Mm -hmm. Time, which has become more graphic, so that we become even less sensitive. Now, even in the graphic, right? That's a good. That's a great insight. All right, Wednesday's lesson. We're talking about um, what happened here when when Peter comes to full realization and understanding of of his betrayal of the Savior. I just wanted to get your thoughts on contrasting how Peter dealt with. His guilt versus how Judas dealt with his. I mean, obviously, Peter understood what he had done. He experiences repentance. He experiences the forgiveness of his Savior, and he ends up restoring the relationship. Judas, the Savior was forgiving, 
Judas experiences a similar guilt and goes out and hangs himself. What's the difference? Wendell? Well, I think it goes back to the, the repentance and the individual as far as whether they accept forgiveness. You know, uh, Peter accepted that the Savior did love him and uh, he, he was re- truly repentant. Judas, I don't think, repented of his sin. He felt sorry that he did it and felt sorry that he had consequences, but he did not repent. He, he felt sorry that things didn't turn out the way he'd planned. I mean, he, he, he had intended to sell the Savior, and then that would force Jesus into making a decision to sh- you know, shake off his, his tormentors and establish his kingdom. And when that didn't happen, there was a, a reality check. Yes? Well, they, they each had a different uh, experience with Jesus before that, too. So the direction they were going, their purpose, and their relationship with him and their understanding of him was different. So when something came in to kind of mess that up for them, one had a view of God as he really was, or at least he was learning it. Mm-hmm. The other one just really didn't, and he had no hope. Thank you. That's a good, great insight. Yes, sir. Similar. It, basically, like you said, you're on the right path. I don't think Judas was ever on the right path, and Peter was. And so the consequences and, and even the feelings that they both had were different. One was remorse, and the other was guilt. Hmm. And yes. Christ knew this and chose him anyway. That's I know. Isn't that astonishing? That's the baffling thing in all of this. Saying, but the way Jesus dealt with both of them was the same. Right. Yeah, correct. Ellen White indicates that Peter was unconverted up until the point, up until this point, up until the point where he realized just how how weak he was. And and after this event, then he she describes this as his conversion experience. Um, what's encouraging to me is that both and James and John were both yet unconverted as well. But the three of them went up to went up on the mount with Jesus and saw him transfigured and and they were exposed to the glory of heaven and they weren't destroyed and yet they were unconverted what is it what does that tell us about about you know being on the right path and being in 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 harmony with with the law of love and yet not being completely converted yet because you know james and john after that experience were arguing about you know who's going to sit on the left and right and you know peter betrays the savior Yes. Maybe it was that they still had their own agenda. They hadn't learned to give their lives over to Jesus. Oh, certainly they hadn't. The point I wanted to make is that they were yet, unquote, unconverted, and yet they... Isn't that conversion when you finally die to self and let Jesus live in you? Yes. Is that the point of conversion? Yes, but they... they saw that he needed to be like Jesus? Correct point i wanted to make is that even as even though there were yet unconverted they were still able to stand in heaven's glory and not be consumed technically they did fall but it was because they were afraid correct but they were they were uh, they were undestroyed they were not destroyed all right let's look at thursday's lesson and the text at the beginning of uh, thursday's lesson there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in christ jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit um, let's talk a little bit about condemnation. One of the most uh, 
popular texts in, in all of scriptures, John 3.16. Um, John 3.17, I think, is just about as, uh, as appealing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his world, Son to the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Uh, someone for me. Uh, someone look up Psalms 103:12. Someone else take Isaiah 118, and someone take John 12:48 through 50. Let's read John 12:48 through 50 first. There is the judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Okay, here we, here we find uh, great insight as to what, what condemnation really is and what it consists of. Christ here says that the word I spoke, the word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. What word did Christ speak? While he was here on this earth. Say it louder. The truth. Christ spoke the truth while he was on this earth. He spoke the truth about the character of God. He spoke the truth about his own character. He spoke the truth about the human condition. And even when he was talking to the Pharisees and calling them broods of vipers, he was speaking the truth to them. And he was doing it in a loving manner, trying to wake them up. This dovetails nicely with the... Um, the view in Revelation of him coming riding the pale horse with a sword coming out of his mouth with which to slay the wicked. Okay, we don't we don't think that he's going to come with a literal uh, samurai sword in his mouth, moving his head back and forth, cutting people to pieces. Okay, what comes out of the mouth are words, and what comes out of Christ's mouth is the truth. And the wicked in the end, the truth is going to be about God's character, Christ's character, and their character, and the contrast between them. That's what's going to destroy the wicked in the end. Yes? I like to think of it as, as Jesus came and spoke and revealed reality. And in the end, the thing that will condemn us or not condemn us is how we fit in with reality. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just the way it is, and whether or not we're in harmony with life or mm-hmm. out of harmony with life. Nicely put. All right, who has uh, Psalms 103.12? As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. I've been fascinated by this text for a while. Do you, do you think that David knew that there was a north and a south pole? Have you guys ever thought about this? If you travel north, there, there's a limit to how far you can travel north, and then you're going to be traveling south. And when you reach the South Pole, you're going to be South Pole. You're going to be traveling north again. You can travel east forever and never reach the west. So I don't think it's coincidence that, that David allowed inspiration to guide him to putting as far as the east is from the west, as, instead of saying as far as the north is from the south. He states this in the past tense. Hmm. Okay, I I'd never consider that either. Thank you, Isaiah one eighteen. This should be a very familiar text for our group. 
Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they, be, though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. I understand that there, there's the process, this process of reasoning with God and wrestling and struggling and understanding and getting to know God. This process is what provides the healing that we, that we so desperately seek. And this healing is what uh, helps resolve the guilt that we're dealing with, whether it's legitimate or illegitimate guilt. Any other um, insights before we wrap things up? Yes? Interesting, then, on the Isaiah text, the first phrase on 19, following that, is, if you only obey me. In the Romans text, it says, there'll be no condemnation, to those who walk, you know, it's not just an assent to truth. It's an ingestion of truth and truth becoming part of you. And that condemnation is not present when we are in harmony. It's not just that we believe that truth exists. Mm. Truth has to be part of us. Yeah, well said. Graham um, Maxwell's book, Servant or, or Slave or Servant, no, Service Slave or Friend, uh, he talks about how Abraham talked with God and questioned him when he wanted to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, God, you don't want to do that. You know, there's still some good people over there. So as a friend, we can talk to God. We feel like we can connect with him. But as a slave, we just obey because he said so. Mm. Great insight. Excellent. All right. Thank you all very much. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the revelation of truth that you have given us through the life, death, and resurrection of your Son on this earth. Uh, we ask for a continued, continued revelations of light uh, through uh, your ministry, through the, the uh, greater understanding of your word, and through the gift of the Holy Spirit. I ask that you be with the, each of these men and women as they go about their lives in this week and bring them safely back ahead in the weeks ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.